everyone, and welcome back to The Odo Approach, a podcast created by medical students for medical students to teach you about all things otolaryngology. I'm your host, Aileen. Today, we're joined by Dr. Leanne Johnson, who has worked at the IWK Health Center in Halifax, Nova Scotia, as a pediatric otolaryngologist since 2003. She spent 17 years getting there, beginning with a Bachelor of Science at Western University, followed by a medical degree at McGill University, and then moving further east for residency training at Dalhousie University, beginning in anesthesia, but then changing to otolaryngology, head and neck surgery, ultimately subspecializing in pediatric airway surgery at Cincinnati Children's Medical Center. As an academic surgeon, her responsibilities include teaching medical students and residents in formal lectures, but mostly through interactive teaching in clinic and operating room settings. Outside of clinic and teaching duties, she has also been involved in educational duties at the Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons of Canada and simulation-based airway training locally throughout Canada and the USA. These experiences have allowed her to contribute this expertise in textbook chapters and clinically-based research papers as well. Outside of the medical world, Dr. Johnson is also a mom of four kids. She has a dog and two cats, and her husband is a mechanical engineer, home inspector, and vineyard manager. Dr. Johnson and her husband just retired from more than 20 years of competitive ultimate frisbee playing at the national and international level. They are now focusing on vineyard development and it is their future retirement plan. Dr. Johnson's motto is anything is possible. Okay, so getting right into it, we were wondering if you would mind telling listeners about the training that's required to become a pediatric otolaryngologist. Pediatric otolaryngology is a specialty that you do after you finish your um, otolaryngology residency, which is typically a five-year residency. Uh, currently, anybody coming into otolaryngology will be in the Royal College's new program. So every site across Canada has a CBD program, which is confidence by design. Uh, so it's very uh, greatly involved with your uh faculty one-on-one, lots of daily feedback, you actually have tasks to complete. So once you've completed your five years, of which you will probably do a minimum of six months of pediatric training in your residency, you can choose to do fellowship. Um, There are um, different fellowships across North America, uh, Australia, there's some in France, United Kingdom. So there's there's lots of options. There are accredited fellowships, which tend to be a two-year fellowship, but many are one year. So I did an accredited two-year fellowship in Cincinnati, Ohio, at the Cincinnati Children's Hospital, which is an absolutely fantastic fellowship and great experience. And uh, it was mostly airway surgery, but it was all facets of pediatric uh, otolaryngology. And I think the only, now I haven't checked this recently, but perhaps the only other accredited fellowship outside of Canada and the U.S. might be Great Ormond Street. Thank you so much for touching on what is required to become a pediatric otolaryngologist. We were also wondering if you could touch on what are the main differences between pediatric versus adult otolaryngology? Oh my goodness. So that's a really good question. There are more than, uh, it's more than just little adults. It's uh, vastly different, as you'll know, when you do your pediatric rotation. The physiology, kids that have more, um, they can <laughs> tolerate a little bit more unwellness, if you wish, before they kind of fall off the cliff. But what happens is when they hit that limit of their physiology, they fall hard and fast, but they do tend to recover. So they, 
I, the pediatric problem set is much different. We have a lot of congenital issues to deal with, a lot of syndromic issues to deal with. And actually, the, the adult world is evolving as well because many of these children now are surviving outside of what was the norms in the past, which often they didn't graduate or transition to adult hospitals. So many of many things that we see will now be seen also in the adult realm. But we tend to deal with it on the front end, establish um, multidisciplinary care for the patients, often the more complicated ones, and uh, so that they can have a more um, all-encompassing transition and uh, continued care. So it is different problem sets um, because I primarily do airway. So anything that's complex from an airway standpoint, I deal with a lot of neonates, some congenital issues. Now, being a pediatric ENT, you uh, have to have good airway training, so not just what I do, which is airway surgery. Uh, pediatric otolaryngology training will include airway training simply because it's a very important form body retrievals, airway assessments, helping out the NICU with the different issues they have with their preterm or complex newborns. So it's a very, uh, I like it, it's a very dynamic practice. Um, many generalists uh, will also do pediatrics. There's a lot of the bread and butter, which is tubes and tonsils, uh, which really crosses over to general laryngology. And when you're a subspecialist, you sort of uh, start adding the more complex patients, ones with syndromes or other complex issues that need to be managed as a tertiary care. Actually, quite a bit of pediatric otolaryngology in the otherwise healthy child can be done in peripheral hospitals. There are different rules depending on the hospitals and anesthesia's comfort with uh, general anesthesia for certain age groups. So uh, in Nova Scotia, many of the hospitals will do tubes in kids two and over, but won't do tonsils unless the children are five and over in the peripheral hospitals, so otherwise they come here. So we still, even though I'm tertiary and quaternary care, I still do a lot of otherwise um, healthy kids who just have a, an issue that needs to be Thank you so much. I think that provides our listeners with a good explanation of the differences between pediatric and adult otolaryngology. We were also wondering if you could tell us a bit about the most common cases you encounter in your practice of pediatric otolaryngology. Well, this is a really interesting time to be asking me that question because this is the first time in over 15 years where in the winter months, we would see hundreds of children with recurrent ear infections. This brings along lots of um, social issues for the families, for the children, lots of repeated antibiotics, lots of doctor's visits, lots of sick time for the parents. It is a very stressful time for these families. Most of these children with this particular problem, and when it starts, are under two. Often they have just started daycare, so there's a whole host of issues here. And now that we are in this pandemic situation, there is a bit of a silver lining. I do tend to be a more positive person with my outlook, but this is shockingly um, amazing that I would have to say I'm seeing not even a tenth of what we would normally see. So the children are just, they're healthier right now because we're all masked up. There hasn't been any cases of flu uh, or RSV this winter. It's really been a unique situation. And as an offshoot of that, there's been a huge um, change in the demographic of what we're seeing. We're seeing a lot more little nosebleeds than we are ear infections. But ear infections, especially in the two and under, or persistent middle ear fluid, which impacts hearing and potentially speech, uh, school learning, things like that, we see in the slightly older children. 
five, six, seven sometimes. Um, and as an offshoot of that, children older than two can also have upper airway obstruction, so large adenoids, potentially large adenoids and tonsils, which are contributing to the ear issue. So that is probably the biggest bread and butter. I think generalists can also, um, if you're putting tubes in the ear, it would be really important to know how to fix that if there is a residual hole. So doing some panoplasty, so just patch, patching the eardrum, and would also be on the purview of a generalist, but we also do that as well. And what other things? Epistaxis. So nosebleeds is very common in kids, um, and I feel like every clinic I'm doing two or three currently because I'm not seeing the hundreds of kids with ear infections. So it's been a very interesting switch. I'm a little bit excited to see uh, what's going to happen coming into the future. Does this mean that there will be hundreds of kids who never get tubes that should have? It'll be really interesting to see for the demographic of our practice over the next five years. Wow, what an interesting point to bring up about how your practice has changed throughout the pandemic and how you predict it might change in the future as well. We were also wondering if you could speak a little bit about who you collaborate the most with in your practice. Uh, well, anesthesia always. <laughs> So if it's somebody going to the OR, um, I'll often run up and talk to a colleague and we'll review the more challenging cases, or at least making a plan or any, um, see if they have any concerns or want any other investigations, which isn't very common, but it's just good to have the conversations. Respirology, gastroenterology are two that we collaborate with frequently. I also do all the thyroid surgery, so I work very closely with endocrinology. And radiology is at the basis of everything that we do, so there's uh, lots of collaboration. And then really, I'm in a pediatric hospital, so all facets of care fall with my pediatric colleagues, both in the emergency department as well as those in clinics. So it, it's, um, it's variable. There isn't a consistent multidisciplinary team, um, but it's nice that most of the divisions are fairly small. At one point or another, I will have encountered most of the other physicians, and so you can just pick up the phone. Um, sometimes even just troubleshoot a patient without an official consult. So it's a really nice collaborative care, at least from my standpoint at this hospital, uh, but uh, pretty much all facets of genetics uh, is greatly involved there, very overwhelmed with a lot of the demand currently. Um, they don't tend to work together in clinics, but they have a huge impact on um, where we go from here with certain patients and the care plan. Absolutely. Thank you so much. We were also wondering if you could tell us what the most challenging parts of your job are, and also what are some of the most rewarding parts of your job? I think it's just the layers of involvement that you need in certain patients. It's really listening to the patients and trying to make sure that the care is delivered and what they're seeking and what they need. Um, I'm also a strong believer that I'm not here to fix things. I'm here to, the body is really smart. I'm here to facilitate and so a lot of the surgeries that I do, like tonsil and anatomy, putting tubes, you know, we just kickstart the body and then give it the means by which it can slowly resolve the chronic inflammation and things like that. From an airway standpoint, I, I am more of a fixer, but I, I have to be very uh, cautious and conscientious that I'm not there to go make these big, huge strides again and just uh, setting expectations with the family, being very patient. We are definitely in a society we want to fix now. And so I think maybe that sometimes is the biggest challenge is just making sure that you're able to communicate clearly, have those open conversations. And it's not one conversation because I've realized it's, it's really uh, challenging to explain what we do sometimes in a complex area, especially when I try to explain to families the airway surgery. It's such a visual thing for me, yet 
in the day-to-day -day life, we don't go around seeing our airway. And so when I start to try to explain vocal cords and subglottis and trachea, they aren't things that we see in the day-to-day. -day. So it definitely takes time, patience, repeated conversations. Um, and families normally, it's really amazing, actually. they You see them just relinquish trust and are on board with the treatment plan. And the focus goes from let's fix this now to yes, it's all for my child and we're gonna do the best we can. And you know, you set long-term goals and anytime you achieve those goals a little ahead of the date, it, that's a celebration as opposed to saying, oh, well maybe next time it'll be ready and it's not. And then you go through disappointment, disappointment. So I'm very cautious about setting some long-term plans with families, really engaging them. I have a fantastic airway nurse um, who helps do some of the teaching, although there's a whole teaching set up for tra uh, tracheotomy patients. Uh, but working with Tracy, who closely will stay in touch with families, and if there's more information that's needed, then I just jump in on a different phone call or, or conversation with the family. So we have a really nice dynamic that way. And I didn't mention in the last question, but whenever we do airway surgeries, one of my colleagues from the adult hospital, he comes and operates with me. So we have created a little airway team because he doesn't have um, a lot of airway surgery experience, but he does a lot with voice. And so there's a significant overlap in what we do. So that way, if there's an airway surgery that needs to be done at the adult, I go over there to help with the case as well. So we, we've got our little mini airway team. Um, and most of my patients, once they have graduated from an airway issue, will have some voice issues to contend with. And so they'll go see Dr. Brown. And so we, we have this nice working relationship where we can, uh, our, our patients are cared for by this mini team of ours. <laughs> There's a really interesting uh, multidisciplinary care team that was started when I was a fellow in Cincinnati called the Aerodigestive Center. And uh, unfortunately in Nova Scotia, we don't have multidisciplinary care codes. Um, and although I'm not fee-for-service surgeon, I'm basically salaried, uh, salaried on an academic funding plan. There's They still don't allow that. So we're sort of doing these dualized care for the patients but we we're not doing like maybe two surgeons or, or physicians but not these uh, multidisciplinary five and six surgeon uh, physicians have to be careful so these air digestive clinics not only was it otolaryngology you had respirology you had gastroenterology pediatrics allergy um sleep medicine uh, i'm missing something there's probably dentistry craniofacial so just a really big encompassed group to deal with these more complex patients with multi-layers of uh, either airway obstruction or issues. So it really provided optimized care for these more complex patients. And so I see things are going this way. I think it's just a little challenging to, to digest for the system the way it's set up, but it's slowly changing. And I think um, as well as the pediatric hospitals. So from my standpoint, here's my bias, is that I really feel that people are here for the kids. And so if I ask, and I'm not hesitant to ask, that it's amazing what people will do to come together. So it really is possible to still collaborate, uh, even if you're not all in the same room at the same time. Thank you so much for speaking about that. I know a lot of our listeners are interested in who they would be collaborating with should they undertake an otolaryngology career. We were also wondering along the lines of collaboration, if you could talk a little bit about your experiences with teaching and research in the field. Well, from a teaching standpoint, when I first started in practice, um, I started doing the weekly exams for the residents, which is really just a means of checking in and seeing how you're doing from a knowledge-based standpoint. And I don't really have an education background, but I just was really interested in it. 
And from there, slowly over time, things have evolved. I started working or volunteering at the Royal College on the examination uh, committee at the time, uh, examination board, it keeps changing its name. And um, so creating the exam. So from this, I started learning a lot more. I've started the simulation uh, sessions, working in collaboration with anesthesia and nursing. So we do this interdisciplinary uh, simulation. Uh, usually it's an airway simulation. So we have a small mannequin for mimicking a one-year-old that's hooked up to monitors. And so we work collaboratively um, to help really train anesthesia residents, uh, otolaryngology residents. And um, it's a really good brush up for our nursing staff because they're there consistently. And these are cases that aren't done frequently, but they're high risk uh, or high stakes cases. Um, so from um, an education standpoint, I really feel I'm slowly evolving my interests. Um, I'm really interested in actually, I know it's not really education in a pure sense, but I'm really interested in starting an, a mentorship program initially for the women faculty in the Department of Surgery and seeing how we can train ourselves to help be future mentors slash educators for residents coming through and then eventually trickle down to the med school. Because I really think we don't get buy-in from the up, you know, the upper echelons. It's easy to get buy-in when you're in, I would have signed up for anything in med school, right? So I think it's really um, kind of have to start at the beginning, make sure that everybody's supporting each other, they have a unified goal, they have an understanding of what their role is, and so that we can start expanding that and really increase in interest. So I think that's where I'm, I know it's not really pure education, but it's definitely uh, my interest from this standpoint. It's just broadening the spectrum of getting the knowledge of our specialty out there, increasing interest, but not just, it doesn't have to just be with laryngology. Really, any surgical subspecialty for women, I think, I think people shy away. So I really want to ensure that people see somebody like them who's doing uh, a role that they can see themselves potentially doing and just increasing the choices or the visible choices perhaps. So not really a pure education, but I think it will benefit in the future. Um, and definitely can, I want to continue with simulation. Um, I think there's a lot we can do, especially in this new CBD curriculum through the Royal College in terms of uh, there are fewer training hours and all of these uh, other potential, I'll call them restrictions. Um, this way, it's like doing simulation training for airline pilots. Uh, so you put in the hours, and it might not be a, a true patient, but man, your physiology feels like you're doing a real patient. And so your heart is racing, your palms are sweating, you're feeling stressed about making decisions. So I think it's very practical, um, and I do think it's a, a significant adjunct to the day-to-day with no harm to patients nor to yourself. The research that I do tends to be airway oriented or really based on clinical uh, improvements. So something that will help me provide better care for my patients. Um, I am uh, part of a few cross Canada research groups we're looking at uh, laryngeal papilloma in children. And so we've been uh, collecting data for 15 years and every five years we continue to collect data and we're hoping to see that the Gardasil vaccine leads to a reduction in incidence um, and perhaps also a reduction in severity of disease because it's more aggressive in uh, children than it is, than it is in adults. Um, I'm also part of another group that uh, is North American groups across the review US where the primary researcher is. Um, it's also an offshoot of this uh, papilloma is looking at an adjunctive treatment. So there's all these biologic modifier drugs that are coming out, these monoclonal antibody 
uh, drugs, and it's really changing medicine. You guys are starting at a very exciting time where for many diseases, and I won't call them orphan diseases necessarily, but not as common diseases, but again, the high impact for the family and patient to have them, there's a lot of potential other treatments now. So over the last five to 10 years, things have started to shake up a little bit. They're more exciting. I'm really excited to see how this might slowly put me out of business. And some of these patients might not need surgery and we could improve their um, situation and their um, infection, if we're talking about papilloma, with systemic treatment. That's so interesting. Thank you so much for speaking about that. The last thing we wanted to ask you was, what advice would you give to yourself as a medical student or when you were just starting out in the field of otolaryngology? Well, so I didn't mention this, but I didn't start off residency in otolaryngology. I started off in anesthesia. So I did two years in anesthesia. So as a med student, I had no idea what otolaryngology was. I think I did med school at McGill. We did a two-week block that consisted of otolaryngology and ophthalmology. And I feel like I've retained no ophthalmology because if I see a consult from an ophthalmologist, I have no idea what they're talking about. I can make out left eye and right eye, and other than that, that's it. Um, I semi-joke, but not really. So I really didn't have a lot of exposure. And I think, and I'm hoping, that the current design of the med school curriculum is such that you have a little bit better exposure, uh, perhaps even uh, better support and mentorship, I don't want to uh, put down my med school because I really loved my, I loved every second of it, but we didn't have a lot of one-on-one with the staff. So it was very hierarchical. And so oftentimes I, you know, it was the PGY2 that was giving the med student the, you know, leading us by, by the hand and showing us what to do. So you didn't really have a good sense of things, but in anesthesia, it was one-on-one with the staff. That, I feel like, was one of my only experiences having that direct contact with staff and getting lots of positive feedback. I feel like, oh, this is what I should do. And so when I started uh, residency, um, it, it is very exciting, and I liked the, the manual techniques. Love the airway. I think that was my passion from the beginning, but I quickly realized that at four o'clock in the morning, instead of um, monitoring my patient's physiology. It's still an incredibly important job, but um, I realized that I actually wanted to be doing more. So it, it did take me a while because I wanted to ensure that this wasn't just a flight of fancy and that I really wanted to do more from a surgical standpoint. Um, so I didn't switch until after I completed two years of residency. Um, and I had to go through an interview process because there are Luck of timing, there was a spot that opened up actually at the same university, and of the candidates I was luckily chosen, so I, yeah, I use the word luck, but it's, sometimes it's just it's timing and your background, and then from my standpoint, I do feel incredibly lucky that um, what a wonderful residency I had, and then I was able to combine my love of anesthesia with, and, and uh, otolaryngology with airway and do a fellowship in airway surgery. So. It really has been a unique path. Um, and so I just hope that from a med school standpoint that there is a means of getting a little bit more um, mentorship, a little bit more one-on-one, um, trying to explore who you are. But it's so hard in medicine if you know we're still getting to know ourselves. You know, we know so little about the globality of all of the different um, specialties and facets for patient care when you're starting in med school. Everything's new, the language is new, everything's new. So 
I feel like it, it, uh, it's a hard time to make a decision. You really are evolving as a person. So that's as the second challenge. And oftentimes you feel like you love everything. So it's really hard to really be able to be honest with yourself and make a decision. So um, some mentorship is helpful. Lots of observing time is also helpful. And really uh, not being afraid. I think that was a big thing for me is somehow in my head I was telling myself I didn't want to lead the life of a surgeon and I wanted to still be able to have this, you know, uh, a life. <laughs> and um, and somehow ultimately one day I was like, but I'm having the life of a surgeon as anesthesia um, with just different responsibilities. I think the other thing too from my standpoint is I hadn't realized that about myself, but I really liked the patient interaction. Anesthesia, you still get a patient interaction. It's very different, it's very intense, but it's very brief. And you often don't uh, know what happens to them after. Very similar to emergency medicine, actually. And I realized from my standpoint, that was a really important thing for myself, for my growth as a clinician, for my happiness as a human. I had to have that uh, ability to get to know patients. Now, um, from an otolaryngology standpoint, like sometimes we don't see patients. You know, you meet them once in the clinic, you operate on them, and then we do a phone call follow-up, so let's say, for for example, for tonsillectomy patients. And so I don't have a deep relationship for them, but I definitely make sure that that encounter, that 20-ish minute encounter the first time is a good one and then re-supported by the next encounter before the surgery. So it's a, it's a very unique thing. So there are little facets of we don't think of what's important for us from a personality because we're still developing. So um, it, it's hard. So having a good mentor might help you look at, at the things that are important to you from a person and what fits with your personality standpoint. And I think we can be happy with more than just one choice. Um, but I think it's, it's really important to try to dig deep a little bit and figure that out. Yes, absolutely. And that's one of the main goals of this podcast is to help expose medical students to otolaryngology so that they can decide if it's something that they're interested in. Thank you so much, Dr. Johnson, for that amazing interview and for sharing your knowledge and experiences with us. Thank you to listeners for tuning in today, and we hope that you'll be back for our next episode.